Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, what's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute live on WBAI. We are a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 70,000 members nationwide. NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Once again, my name is Amy Wilson. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm with the DSA of North Brooklyn. In his 1971 hit, the great soul singer Marvin Gaye wrote, picket lines and picket signs, don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see what's going on. In the late 1960s, the people of the United States rose up against U.S. military intervention abroad and were met with state repression at home. Fifty years later, the revolution is continuing. On today's episode of Revolutions Per Minute, we're catching up not only with the news, but also with the way we understand the news. How do we divorce ourselves from the empty narratives offered to us by capitalist media and develop a principled critique informed by history, theory, and lived experience? The answer for many is organized political education. We'll hear from a comrade, scholar, and organizer known to many for his work on the other side of the microphone here at Revolutions Per Minute, our very own Jack Devine. Later in the show, we'll open the phones, which we can do again, to hear from our live listening audience of WBAI, so please stay tuned for that. And we'll also have an update from Lee Zishi from last Saturday's rally to stop a new fracked gas plant in Astoria. But first... The headlines with Simone Norman. Fearing in an arrest, a Black Lives Matter protester broke his arm in two places after being shoved by the NYPD. Six protesters were detained by the NYPD following a demonstration outside the 34th precinct on Saturday. A new report from the CUNY Center for Labor and Urban Studies finds that New York City unions have a historic opportunity to increase membership during the pandemic. Already, approximately 20% of city workers belong to a union. Pledged rule changes to limit the use of solitary confinement in New York prisons have been pushed back until 2023. A report by the Independent Budget Office illustrated the ballooning staff numbers at district attorney offices across the city in the last decade, even as crime declined. The entire command staff of the Rochester Police Department, including the police chief and the deputy chiefs, announced that they're retiring. This comes after protests over the death of Daniel Prude in police custody and after Mayor Lovely Warren announced reform plans. A Department of Education report says that 96% of New York City school classrooms have proper ventilation to reopen, but only 43% of bathrooms do. Some school staff members are not convinced by the report. The de Blasio administration caved to Upper West Side residents who demanded that they move New Yorkers experiencing homelessness out of the Lucerne Hotel, where they had been staying during the pandemic. 
More than 150 New York City business leaders sent a letter to Mayor de Blasio decrying deteriorating conditions in the city and urging stronger action to improve public safety and, quote, other quality of life issues that jeopardize economic recovery. Governor Cuomo unveiled a plan to allow indoor dining at restaurants beginning September 30th. Restaurants will have to follow several rules, including remaining at or below 25% capacity, keeping tables six feet apart, and closing by 12 a.m. And in election news, New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer officially launched his campaign for mayor. His kickoff announcement featured speeches by a slate of progressives, including State Senator Julia Salazar and State Assembly Member Yulene Now. Tiffany Caban, a former DSA-endorsed candidate for Queens District Attorney, who came within 60 votes of winning that race, has announced her candidacy for the 22nd City Council District in Astoria. Labor historian Joshua Freeman penned an essay that compared the slate of socialists headed for Albany to a group of Socialist Party legislators that were expelled from the state legislature 100 years ago. Rudy Giuliani's son, Andrew, is considering a run for mayor in 2021. Andrew famously interrupted his father's 1994 mayoral inauguration speech, an incident that SNL later parodied. And finally, city and state speculated whether or not labor unions would enter into electoral coalitions with socialists and progressives in 2021 after their traditional allies in the centrist Democratic establishment suffered significant losses in 2018 and 2020. Thank you, Simone. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by New York City DSA's electoral working group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, and on last week's episode, we took a deep dive into the struggle to stop a new fracked gas plant in Astoria, Queens. Last Saturday, September 12th, DSA and our coalition partners held a rally to show the people's opposition to this proposed development. For an update from that rally, let's go to Lee Zishi. for showing this neighborhood what solidarity looks like. That is the only force in this world that is going to stop the worst effects of climate change is solidarity. On Saturday, over 200 people marched through the streets of Northern Queens and rallied at the site of the proposed Astoria NRG power plant. Fossil fuel giant NRG wants to build a 437 megawatt frack gas power plant at the large Con Ed complex located on the waterfront in Queens. Since the proposal has been discovered, there has been a lot of opposition from the local community and elected officials. Here's why DSA member Joseph Tejada. And one of my favorite revolutionaries, Mr. Antonio Brown, he once said, the old words die, and the new one is struggling to be born. I'm going to tell you why the new voice is struggling to be born. It's struggling because of connect. Yeah. It's struggling yeah. because of energy. Yeah. It's struggling because we don't have a green new deal. Right. If they don't give us a green new deal, we're going to go to their doors, and we're going to get it from them. State Senator Jessica Ramos and DSA-endorsed candidate and Democratic nominee for State Assembly Zoran Mondami also spoke at the rally. 
Now, let me get this straight. We're in a pandemic. We've lost more than a thousand people in this district. The conditions of many of those people were exacerbated by the amount of pollution that we have in our area. We have closed five hospitals in Queens in the past 20 years. Now, the governor wants to ram a a power plant down our throats. I cannot, cannot believe that they are allowing this to somehow continue knowing how bad of an actor NRG is because you should know it's a shady-ass corporation that has no business being in this district. We have to organize, organize, organize. And that's why I want to thank DSA for everything you guys are doing. We would not be here, obviously, but we wouldn't have such an understanding of the process because it's so cloaked in secrecy. So I'm here today to not only fight back against NRG, to not only fight back against the fossil fuel industry at large, to not only reject a so-called solution of fracked natural gas, I'm also here today to fight back against despair. It is often easy when confronting the scale of the climate crisis to feel a sense of helplessness. But we must know that a drop in Astoria makes waves across New York City and New York State. This is not just something to make ourselves feel better that we can say, we stopped this one plan, I feel great. This will have a tangible impact on the way we do things here in New York State. And when we take that action, we must take it with the understanding that the climate crisis is not separate from the crisis of capitalism. These are inextricably tied together. And I don't just say that because I'm a proud PSA member and I'm a big lover of the Eco-Socialist Working Group. I say that because that is the fact of the matter here in New York State. This is not just something out of principle. This is something that is possible. And it's not just possible. This is something that is practical. Because we do not come here today to say we want a slightly less bad plan. We want it built by a separate fossil fuel company. We come here today that we reject this and that we are for public power. And public power, to make it very clear, is a utility system that will be publicly owned and democratically controlled. We have a vision for the future that is renewable. Because we have the technology. We have the need. We have the people. And all that we're missing is the time. So let's get to it. Let's join eco-socialists. Let's join the larger coalition. And let's make this dream into our reality. To learn more about the Astoria NRG power plant, you can listen to the episode of Revolutions Permanent we did last week with organizer Shay O'Reilly on our Simplecast. For Revolutions Permanent, this has been Lee Zishi. Back to you, Amy. Thank you so much, Lee. And we'd also like to thank IAPA of the New York City DSA Eco-Socialist Working Group for recording that audio in the field last Saturday, September 12th. My name is Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we're talking about 
what's going on. And to help me do that, I have our very special guest, Jack Devine. Uh, are you there, Jack? What's good? It feels real nice to be on the uh, other side of the chair. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I, I'm I'm really excited to um, speak with you about this topic and for our listeners to um, get to know uh, you a little bit better and your capacity as an as an organizer um, beyond what you do here um, as a host and producer for Revolutions Per Minute. So um, I'm going to start uh, with the question that you have asked uh, many times. Um, who are you? And uh, what brought you into the struggle? What are the social forces um, that made you the, the organizer and the political person that you are today? Uh, well, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> you do I say so yourself. A little credit <laughs> for uh, putting that together over the, over the past couple of years. Uh, no, but uh, uh, to those who don't know or maybe never listened before or checked out other episodes, I'm uh, Jack Devine, he, him pronouns. I've been with uh, Revolutions Per Minute, hosting here on WBAI for over a year and a half now. And also I'm a staff representative on the local station board. But I also do a lot of other organizing work, um, especially in political education, which is a, a passion of mine, something that I think is absolutely crucial for the moment. And the sort of social forces that push me in the direction where I am now, where I've developed this analysis and see the necessity of understanding history as class struggle and the need to fight for the power of the working class was actually that back in, you know, the early 2000s, I, when I was a young kid, I really brought, like, bought into the kind of nationalist narrative of American history. And there was kind of real material reasons for that. Uh, my family, you know, just in the kind of history that they, the personal history they experienced, had come to America from whether that was Ireland suffering under British imperialism or the pogroms in Russia, and had really had a, a story of upward mobility. The American dream in some ways was true for them. There were obviously, there's uh, darker sides to this and things I could explore and contradictions to this, but there was a real story that could be believed and told. And this really began to shatter for me uh, with a number of major historical events. The kind of the absolute failure and barbarism uh, that the Iraq war represented and unleashed into the Middle East really began to have me question the basic tenets of the society that I lived in and the kind of escalation of the war on terror. And then the, the financial crisis really put to the fore that the, this like American capitalist system that I had been told was, uh, perfect and functioning great and had kind of overcome its, its biggest faults was actually uh, on the precipice and experiencing massive uh, and like unleashing horrible trauma onto people and was really uh, kind of spiraling towards self-destruction and then just becoming more and more aware of the, the crises that capitalism was producing, um, especially something like climate change. At the same moment that I personally have, you know, like many uh uh, middle class and upper cl middle class millennials experience some personal uh, downward mobility. These kind of two uh, social forces on top of the rising new movements that were happening in the first half of the 2010s uh, with Occupy Wall Street, with Black Lives Matter, 
with the Sanders campaign, with Standing Rock, kind of all of these developments happening at the same time really uh, changed, shifted my consciousness and made me recognize that if we're going to avoid a barbaric future, socialism is the only answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you started to, uh, I think, lay the groundwork for it a little bit in your response to that personal question. But before we uh, dig into the question of political education, um, let's return to the overarching question of today, which again is what's going on? So in, in your words, you know, how, how do you understand the moment that we're in here in September of, of, of 2020? What's going on? Well, it, it, it's hard to fully summarize that uh, in uh, five minutes, let alone, well, in an hour, let alone five minutes. But I think what's very, very clearly happening, and I think is the kind of the biggest uh, contradiction that we are experiencing is that the capitalist mode of production can no longer uh, sustain itself with the need to reproduce the, it's like basic ecological conditions that the way that capital kind of exploits, not just labor, but also the environment and really transforms environments for competitive accumulation for more and more profit. It's created a condition where not just with the more obvious thing in terms of climate change, where you have both the fossil fuels heating up the atmosphere and leading to these increase in these massive storms as we're seeing right now in the Gulf or the wildfires out in California, but the wildfires are also produced by the kind of land use policies that a regime of private property and real estate accumulation produce where you prioritize as the interest of wealthy homeowners over the kind of reproduction of a safe and healthy environment. But this also connects even more broadly to something like the pandemic, where this isn't often discussed, but if you actually dive into the science, and I think someone who is a great job of integrating science history and political, sci- uh, and political science, like Mike Davis, really gets into is how the transformation that we're seeing in the Chinese countryside and the kind of mass factory farming and urbanization of domestic animals, the collision of mass amount of people being forced into cities to work into factory jobs at the, in the same space, as well as kind of the international supply chains that are absolutely crucial to uh, contemporary capitalism have created this monster at our doorstep that we are now living through. And these contradictions are exploding at the same time. And then we could get even further into the long history of the racialized division of labor within capitalism and how that relates to the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. Or we could talk about in terms of what's happening with New York City schools. We have a real contradiction and the need to kind of keep people safe, have children, uh, being have care workers, you know, look after the children whose uh, parents need to go into work. But this is also creating a condition where people are going to die and suffer because of the demands of competitive accumulation, where capital needs to exploit labor in the workplace and in order to keep functioning. So it unleashes all these various contradictions that I could keep exploring at many levels, but at the core, it's rooted in. Uh, capital's need to accumulate and in the need to exploit 
labor in nature and transform it in order to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and those deeper explorations are and the opportunity to discuss and really dive in is exactly what uh, organized political education offers. So that's what we're going to uh, focus on for the rest of our our interview here. I do want to um, just for our listening audience underline the recommendation of Mike Davis and his recent writing. Um, on the coronavirus pandemic. It's some of the most lucid writing that I've read um, on this very multi-layered political issue. And I would add to Jack's analysis um, that Mike Davis also connects it brilliantly to um, privatized pharmaceutical industries here in the United States that don't have um, the, a profit motive in developing uh, vaccines and treatments, or they haven't had a profit motive in developing vaccines and treatments for the coronavirus and other related viruses, which is part of why uh, one of the many elements that got us where we're going. You know, as somebody who remembers growing up in the 90s and seeing all of the, you know, the escalating commercials for um uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, I look back on that now and I'm like, wow, that was really laying the groundwork for this very dark um, medical and social political moment. So that's my little plug. Um, <laughs> glad I got a chance to get it in to get it in on this show. Um, so, Jack, my next question for you is: um, Why is socialist political education um, important to understand what's going on in the world? How does political education support the larger goals of our socialist movement? Or, in short, why? Why do we do it? That's a great question. And I, I, to start, I think it, it helps demystify the sort of narratives that you're going to receive from the powers that be. Uh, a socialist political analysis allows us to really, one, both kind of interrogate and debunk the absurdities offered by the ascendant fascist right. There are uh, conspiracy theories about the world um, where they kind of take these tidbits of truth, like this whole QAnon thing, where you have uh, this, oh, there's this pedophile conspiracy that Trump is fighting back against, when it's the reality is that Trump is actually probably a pedophile. And the reason that you have all these rich pedophiles is because the capital system uh, empowers a ruling class to act um, in a way that is beyond the law, that is, um, despite kind of the uh, what, whatever you hear from the, the kind of liberal and even conservative people who love to preach about the, the rule of law and law and order in a capitalist system, it's actually very, very clear that, uh, if you've been paying attention, especially over the past 40 years, that the ruling class gets to do whatever they want and completely disregards the law. So it enables you to kind of interrogate a conspiratorial analysis and rather rooted in sort of class domination exploitation. But it also kind of allows uh, people to recognize where their power is. So socialism is not just about, and, and Marxist theory uh, specifically, is not just about interrogating domination and exploitation, but how you can flip that exploitation on its head and create institutions, working class institutions to challenge the, the uh, system of exploitation and domination, that there is power for workers to organize collectively and fight back in the workplace by building unions, especially unions that are oriented not just around simple bread and butter demands of getting higher wages, but are actually oriented around class struggle and fighting back against the bosses and building power. But beyond just the workplace, you can think of this in terms of 
developing community institutions. Something that I always like to talk about here is a radio station like WBAI that is separate from the kind of corporate media structure that can instead project the analysis that we're talking about today. But this also delves into sort of tenant union organizations, uh, political organizations like DSA. Uh, and I'm, I could think of more and more, but I, I don't want to ramble on forever. But it kind of, it, this analysis allows us to think critically and strategically about building the sort of power that we need organizationally to fight back. And the reason why it's so crucial for a, a socialist organization to have political education is to make sure that this is part of all of our work, that this analysis, that this broader, not just kind of short-term strategic and tactical thinking, but also the horizon that we're working for, that we understand that you can't just have these small reforms and fix the political economy that we're in, but that rather that's rooted in exploitation. And the only way to challenge it is by building working class power. So th these are some of just the, the many reasons why it's so crucial to have this sort of analysis ingrained and sort of institutionalized within our organization, that we have a real commitment to doing it. And I think some of the weakness of the uh, American labor movement currently uh, really reveals, uh, and I think this is starting a dynamic that is starting to change, but what happens when you have a working class organization that is lacks any form of political education? And this is distinct from how many unions used to operate, which used to have these union schools where they talk about class struggle, about really teach political economy, the need to kind of build power in the workplace. And you're seeing some unions like the Chicago Teachers Union, which their rank and file caucus actually began out of these reading groups, re reading Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, and started to have this broader analysis of capitalism that could really shape the way that they're fighting back in that instance, against the capitalist city government that was trying to implement austerity and further ex exploit, uh, exploit them in order to preserve the interests of the ruling class in that city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great example because I think that, you know, one thing that's often misunderstood about political education is that it's quote unquote, just a reading group, or if you want it to be negative, you know, just a bunch of people sitting around and talking and it's not, ac it's not actual organizing or it's not, you know, since you're not out in the streets, you know, it's, it represents a, a different and more long-term and deeper in, in some, in some ways you could say potentially, um, form of engaging, um, with, with politics. Um, so I'm going to ask you what's kind of a theoretical question because I, I know that you're a very, passionate educator. Um, when we talk about pedagogy or the, the, the science, I suppose, of education in and of itself, is there such a thing as anti-capitalist pedagogy? And what does that look like for educators in practice? Yeah, I, I'm, this is a really, I think, crucial aspect of uh, political education as socialists is considering the way in which, uh, to, to use an overused academic phrase, that we uh, engage with the actual practice of political education. And to kind of maybe slightly go back to the, the last question and to lead into this one, uh, one other thing that I think is really crucial about having political education as a socialist organization is to challenge the dominant ideological narratives that exist 
um, in our society and, and American capitalist society where something like anti-communist ideologies is so prevalent, but also the, the history of class struggle has been um, taken away from us and mm-hmm. is really suppressed. And so a huge purpose of political education for, for me, and I think this kind of relates eventually to the sort of uh, pedagogical question that you asked, is developing and really uh, putting out there, I think, the real narrative of American history, a narrative of class struggle, and not just of highlighting, which is very, very important, the critique of the American ruling class, but talking about the moments in which the working class has organized or other oppressed classes have organized and transformed society. The most, the example I always love to draw on is the general strike during the American Civil War, or even going before that, talking about something like the emergence of a uh, much different Republican Party that exists now in this sort of mass uh, anti-slavery coalition or getting into the New Deal, the struggles that happened in that period of building working class power with the CIO and sort of really focusing in on these stories. So, I, and I think a part of, of doing that and really kind of crafting this this narrative that challenges the lies that are told um, by the various factions of the ruling class, whether they are liberal, conservative, fascist, however you want to say it, is, is that is having people participate in this process of political education and not just as receptors. This isn't to say that lectures aren't valuable. I really think they are and are actually a, a, can be a really crucial tool if it's just one aspect of what you're doing. And obviously things like having uh, reading groups where you're having this discussion based on texts is also very, very important. And the way you structure that is also crucial where you develop facilitators who are not just talking at people and telling them what to think, but rather having those spaces be places where people develop the tools themselves in order to uh, analyze the current situation and also kind of develop a different understanding of of historical development than they may have been propagated to by the media or if they uh, didn't have great teachers who challenged that. Um, but I guess related to that, I think is also having people get involved in the kind of behind the scenes aspect of political education itself and get involved in developing the curriculum, not just have people who are professional academics being developing the syllabuses for uh, DSA's night schools, um, but rather having people who never have been able to have the opportunity to do something like that, especially exciting, maybe someone who didn't even get the chance to get a college education, participating and shaping the way the, the readings that we discuss or the way that we're actually talking about political education, the questions that we're asking, the ways that we're thinking about um, history and uh, the current situation we're in. So it's about, I think, maybe breaking down the kind of the master student dialectic and making it more of a kind of dialogical process where people are are talking and developing these things um, through engaging with each other and building on top of each other's analysis rather than thinking that we have this one individual or these few individual geniuses that we need to take information on from high, but rather thinking political education as a constant ongoing process of developing our collective uh, capacity for strategic thinking and in terms of building working class power. Yeah, I love it. And I think another point that, that can't be said often enough is that, you know, the, the education is free metaphorically, but it's also free 
materially, right? Anybody can uh, log, now we're in a virtual world, anybody can log into uh, a night school program that DSA is having. Anybody can can join a reading group, right? We're not charging tuition. We're, we're making information accessible um, at a very, very basic level. So um, you're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting 99.5 FM, streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're talking about um, political education and how that builds resiliency and it builds the ability to handle living through an incredibly intense historic moment like the one that we're, we're in right now. Um, and with me to help me uh, discuss the topic, I have someone who's usually a host of Revolutions Per Minute here today as a guest and a political educator, Jack Devine. And we will open up the phones um, in just a few minutes, and Jack and I will be on the line, and you can help us answer the question of uh, what's going on. But first, um, we have uh, our, our ask of you, um, which is to please consider uh, supporting WBAI if you can. Um, if you were listening uh, continuously right before us, you heard um, Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! giving a... Um, giving her own um, fundraising spiel um, for the station. And, and she said something that I thought was really remarkable, which she said, WBAI is a university of the airwaves with free admission, which I agree with and I think is really special. It means that WBAI is a, a cultural institution that should be, should be preserved, which is why I'm, I'm proud to be um, a volunteer um, producer and host on the station. In the introduction to today's show, I referenced the social upheaval of the late 1960s and early 1970s, which was 50 years ago. Um, and just like we at, here at Revolutions Per Minute are reporting live from the front lines of struggle here in New York City in 2020, so producers and hosts at WBAI were doing the same thing back then. And how cool is it for us to be operating in the same tradition that radicals and activists have been operating in for decades? Um, in the introduction to today's show, I also mentioned the song What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant, which is another wonderful anti-Vietnam War song, was first broadcast live right here on WBAI. Right now, we see students, we see campus organizing happening all over the country, and we will be covering that on future shows, Revolutions Per Minute, later in the fall. During the 1968 campus uprising at Columbia, WBAI was there broadcasting live and interrupted, uninterrupted. We're proud to be a part of continuing this tradition. And when you donate to WBAI, you are part of it too. So please consider becoming a recurring monthly donor or BAI buddy in the name of Revolutions Per Minute to support our part of the University of the Airwaves um, and this platform for alternative news and analysis. To do that, you can call 516-620-3602. Once again, that's 516-620-3602. Or you can go to WBAI.org. Thank you so much for listening to Revolutions Per Minute, and thanks for your support of our show. So we understand that our inimitable uh, engineer, Reggie, is actually back in the WBAI studio 
on Atlantic Avenue, which means that we can take listener phone calls once again. Um, it's been uh, something that we haven't been able to do based on the technology that was available um, with remote broadcasting and, and keeping everybody safe. So we're really excited to be able to feature this again on Revolutions Per Minute. And um, the number to call if you'd like to engage with us here at Revolutions Per Minute is 212-209-2877. Once again, that's 212-209-2877. The theme of today's show is what's going on? What's going on for you? What's helping you understand this current moment, whether that be historical references like the ones I've been drawing on for today's show, readings, time with community, or maybe it's something else. So please give us a call, 212-209-2877. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Jack, do you have anything to that you'd like to add to um, any of the, the statements that I just made, or should we go back to talking about political education? <laughs> I think you just delivered the best pitch we've had so far, so nothing oh. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I have another question for you while we wait um, for uh, listener calls. Um, you know, speaking of reading groups being um, focused on a, a sort of classic reading and discussion style, um, what other work do you do that you would classify as political education? For instance, do you think Revolutions Per Minute is political education? Why or why not? And what to you, I'll extend that question. What is important about being a, a radio show, what, what, what does this format offer us that we don't, we might not get from others? Yeah. So I, uh, I think that's a, a really important thing to think about, uh, have political education just beyond this, this, uh, classic classroom structure, even if now it's often, uh, occurring on places that are not typical like zoom. Mm -hmm. Um, and first of all, uh, before diving, into the the RPM question, uh, I think the often the best form of political education is engaging in struggle itself. That doesn't mean struggle without organization. I think organization is absolutely crucial for kind of taking the struggle beyond the immediate moment, reflecting and kind of using that to further build power, further build organization, and make the the uh, aims of the struggle uh, to be more easily delivered upon the victory through struggle through more struggle comes uh, hopefully eventually victory and also better analysis. But something is, it, it, there's this phrase that uh, that's really struck with me that I read from someone last year that solidarity has to be experienced to be believed. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that is really stuck in my mind that um, getting out in the streets or organizing your workplace being on strike, um, even just going to talk to people that you wouldn't expect and kind of shaping your experience like this. Th those are crucial elements of political education in of themselves. But I think it's still very crucial to have a program and have real space to have full out deliberation and to really reflect on things historically. Um, but I think another aspect of political education, and you were leading into this with your question, is our shows like Revolutions Per Minute, what we're doing here is we're trying to um, really shift people's uh, consciousness and really also their kind of understanding of what struggle really represents. Get beyond the sort of uh, horse race politics that you see in corporate media and really expand people's understanding of 
what it's going to take for this to become a better society and not collapse into the barbarism that we all fear uh, is, is not just to come, but is already on the way. Mm-hmm. So what revolutions per minute, what RPM uh, represents is kind of a means of broadcasting out uh, the struggles to people who maybe aren't encountering organization on a daily basis to really maybe spur a thought in their head, especially when they hear directly from organizers, either to plug into that campaign that they're specifically hearing about, whether they want to go help Lee fight back against the pipelines in North Brooklyn or the power plant in Astoria, or if they get a new thought in their head, they hear about a struggle that's happening, say, at the hospital that's uh, at UIC in Chicago this week, or the University of Michigan, where the grad workers are on strike and fighting back. And they hear about that struggle and they say, hey, why don't I take these ideas into into my workplace? And when you're hearing directly from an organizer, you're also starting to get into the details, into the actual uh, challenges that that takes and that you have to have these one-on-one conversations and you have to build power over time. And that's not just as simple as shouting out a slogan and that everything is suddenly going to be all right because people have heard an idea that sounds good. There's a lot by bringing these organizers on the air, really hoping to demystify the process of organization. And you mentioned specifically radio show. And I think that's a really crucial thing because a lot of this kind of emerging young left. I, I don't even think millennial really fits because uh, I think the Zoomers are going even harder than us. And yeah. there's a there's even problems with generational politics, although I think the way that property ownership is divided in the U.S. right now actually kind of really does, uh, in terms of age, really does shape that. Um, but by being on the radio, we are hoping to really connect this this movement that has a really emerging and developing media ecosystem that is very powerful in certain social media spheres. It has these widespread podcast networks. It has these publications, whether they be magazines or books that have developed this level of popularity, but they're still um, kind of trapped within certain demographics. And we can't have a working class movement that is just restricted to uh, one segment of the population. We need to be connecting with people. And the fact that BAI is both, you know, listened to by so many cab drivers uh, across uh, New York's black and brown communities, that is one of the most popular stations, if not the most popular among incarcerated people here in New York. We need to be kind of building these connections and, and really raising awareness of this growing movement and connect. And we hope to use this station as a place to connect these struggles that are happening. And that in of itself um, makes it so so valuable to be broadcasting here on BAI and why this station is so important and needs to be fought for. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of our um, beloved WBAI listeners, uh, have we had anybody call in for us, Reggie? Uh, yes, there's two callers on the line. There are. Okay, great. So um, let's go to, we have a caller on the line. Um, let's go to them if we can. Hello. Hi, you're on with Revolutions Per Minute Live. Okay, I'm on the program, yes, right? Yeah, we can hear you. We can hear you, yes. What's going on, caller? Yeah, what's going on? This past Sunday, uh, Bernie Sanders was interviewed on a program. It was from 8 to 10 in the morning. And on that program, Bernie Sanders was extremely critical and blasted out Joe Biden. And I was wondering, why did Bernie 
do that. And I'm just curious if it might have had an influence from a program called the Jimmy Thor program, which is, play, which is played on WBAI on Thursday night. A question, please. Have any of you listened to the previous past two Jimmy Dore programs on WBAI? Did you hear it yourself? You know, Caller, I'm a graduate student. I actually have my classes on Thursday night, so I, I have not been able to listen to them. Um, and you heard Bernie Sanders. If you can uh, pull it up. If you can pull up those two programs, the past two programs from Jimmy Dore, he is extremely critical of uh, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, the whole crowd. And mm-hmm. on the last program, which was this past Thursday evening, not, and he lumped in also for the first time Bernie Sanders. And he was mm-hmm. extremely, extremely critical of Bernie. And I was wondering if Bernie heard him say that or if people told him about the program and that influenced him from coming out on this past Sunday. Uh, Amy, would it be all right if I address this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So uh, thank you for the the call. Um, And I I wouldn't uh, give Jimmy Dore uh, too much credit. Uh, I I appreciate the call in and the question. I don't want to be dismissive, but I I have a feeling there's a lot of different other reasons that uh, Sanders is being uh, critical of Biden. And uh, I think part of what we're trying to get at with this episode and talking about political education is why actually some of the analysis offered by someone like Jimmy Dore is actually pretty shallow. I mean, it's easy to critique the Democratic Party for being spineless and servants of uh, capital and empire. This is very, very clear. Um, and obvious to uh, people who are really paying attention. But Dorr has, has uh, continuously demonstrated that he has no really uh, strategic uh, thinking beyond just complaining and then talking about voting for the third party when that's not the issue that is at stake here. Um, we are very, very critical of Joe Biden. DSA has not endorsed him and will not endorse Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell people what to do with individually in the ballot box. That is up to them. But what's really at stake here, and I think why someone like Sanders is critiquing Biden, is that these crises that we are currently facing are only going to get worse and worse, regardless of who takes over the presidency in uh, if Biden takes over from Trump. I mean, there there are real distinctions too. I don't want to downplay that between Biden and Trump. I think Trump is showing himself to be more and more an open fascist these days. But obviously, this doesn't mean that we should refrain from critiquing the sort of uh, liberal bourgeois politics that is so encapsulated by Joe Biden, who has spent his career doing horrible things is is absolutely central to locking so many people up. But what we need to be doing as a socialist left is building organization, engaging in struggle on the ground, and engaging in electoral politics strategically, like the the full slate of candidates that we got elected here as NYC DSA 
um, back in June that we were able to sweep and start to really scare the Democratic Party here in New York to start to make some concessions toward us. But the real challenge long term is building up working class institutions, unions that are oriented around class struggle, tenants unions that are fighting back against landlords and building power, community organizations that are kind of creating spaces for people to engage in not just things like political education, but creating social clubs that have, uh, where people can actually socialize and get to know their neighbors and to think about things beyond the sort of um, media beatdown that they're constantly getting from uh uh, that is kind of individualizing and atomizing people. I can go on forever, so let's get to the next caller. <laughs> yeah, let's get to the next caller. And and I would also like to add that, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot is that it's so easy to fall into this narrative of, oh, what do the voters want and who's going to win over the, the voters? And the, this is the voting block that Biden has to win over. It's a very kind of outdated mid-century package politics method of analysis that doesn't reflect the material reality that, um, you know, the, the voting system that we're living under is extremely undemocratic, right? If you could talk about gerrymandering, you could talk about felon disenfranchisement, felon disenfranchisement. I can say this felon disenfranchisement, which we're already in place. I got it. Uh, before we had this, um, kind of, supersisting crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic and the deterioration of the postal service that's threatening um, the vote by mail capabilities. You know, all of this, it, 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 it combines to make me personally, again, this is me speaking for myself, makes me personally believe that this, the system is, is certainly not democratic, is deeply broken. And one of the things that we try to advance um, with our politics of democratic socialism is an, a vision of democracy that is much more participatory and much more on the 365, 24-7 level than just traveling to the ballot box and, and casting your vote once every four years, as we are encouraged to believe political participation is. Um, and that was my chance to rant. Uh, Reggie, do we still have um, yeah. a caller on the line? Okay, you can um, send him live. Yeah. Hi, you're on live with Revolutions Per Minute. Thanks so much for calling in. Hi, this is Rose from Flemington, way out in Hunterton County, where we've been fighting pipelines for quite some time. I do want to make a quick comment. Um, this morning's um, Green Street, I only caught half of it, but they had a professor from uh, Stanford University who was very up on all the other alternative ways of getting energy. And I think that one of the things that you'll need to... Uh, present to the people of Queens who are going to be browbeaten in by this terrible thing is that there are other alternatives. Mm-hmm. And I do ho- wholeheartedly recommend that all of you listen to uh, Green Street Radio. I think they have it on web at, at org um, because it was absolutely fascinating. We have so many options, but boy, these gaslighters, they really want to choke us to death, don't they? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it takes a lot of political education and a lot of resiliency to fight back against that propaganda. So thank you so much for that recommendation. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Yeah, and just to add, it's it's both about the alternative source, which is obviously so crucial and needs to be the center of any sort of transforming the energy system. But the ownership system is is really at core here. And I think that in the last episode that Lee was hosting, she really got after the fact that it's we need public power because 
when you have an or when you have an energy system organized around profit, people are going to be crushed in its wake. And if we have a public power system, we can really transform our energy system into something that is operated and owned and managed by the working class and create this working class um, energy production system that empowers uh, workers within the system and all people in general. Right. And, um, you know, not to be a um, broken record here, but there's also yeah, a, an element cooler. of democracy that's lacking in our um, energy system of transparency, of political participation, you know, the level of um education that it takes to even understand what these companies are trying to do is, is pretty high. So um, we do also believe that, you know, the, the information itself should be democratized and, and should be accessible. Is that you telling me we have another caller, Reggie? Yeah. One more before. One yeah. more. Okay. So we, we got a minute. Time. We'll make it quick. Yeah, yep. Hi, you're on live with Revolutions per Minute. My name is Cliff, calling from New Jersey. Hi, Cliff. I would just like to say that I think we should concentrate on getting rid of the administration that's in power now. And what I mean by that is, instead of asking or talking about what Saunders is saying or what anyone else is saying, we have to focus on voting to make sure that the White House people who are in charge now are gone. Then we can look forward to making some definite changes that will be in the interest of, I would say, most of the American population. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Cliff, um, for calling in. I think what we can agree on is that what's going on in politics right now is incredibly alarming, that um, the lives, health, sanity, and safety of the working class are threatened every single day, and that we urgently need to take action to change the situation. So, um, Jack Devine, thanks so much for, for coming on and, and being a guest. This has been really fun. Thanks for uh, having me on our show. <laughs> yeah, um, Before we close out today's show, um, do you have anything that you'd like to share with the audience in terms of um, upcoming political education or, or ways to get involved? Uh, the the next uh, Central Brooklyn political education events are, are still in the works, at least as far as I know. Um, but I just keep an eye out for what Central Brooklyn Polyed is doing. North Brooklyn Polyed just started up a new night school. You can go on Twitter or just Google that and you'll be able to find it. Um, I can't think of anything else right now, but uh, we'll keep you updated if you follow us on uh, Twitter. We'll make sure to keep you in the loop on all political education events here in New York City. Yeah, there's a lot going on as always. And um, we hope that you can turn to us um, for a bit of understanding and analysis of what's going on um, in the world, in the country, in the city, and in our movement. So uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back live on WBAI next Tuesday at five. I'm Amy Wilson, and this has been Revolutions Per Minute. Okay.